Oh, here we go, here we go. Good for you to have some fun. So much to talk about in such a little bit of time. Happy Reformation. Just stop where you are, let's pray, and then you can finish up whatever, you know, your little chats and uh, get picking up papers, and that's all good. It's good for you to see each other. Oh, Lord, in simplicity of heart and by your gifts, we offer ourselves to you today to be your servants forever, to obey you, and to be a sacrifice of perpetual praise through Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, thanks for stopping. You should have, uh, there's a bunch of new stuff. There's a little thing from Christianity Today. There's one that says number five on the top. There's a little bit more from James. It would be James 1, uh, kind of going on after verse 4, I think. Ah, there's just so much stuff to talk about. One, uh, you remember last week I said one of my concerns in doing this class is this is the sort of thing that can split a congregation. And it was really interesting. I had a very good question before one of the services that said, you know, it probably is a good thing to play at the highest common denominator. What happens with people who sort of can't play at that level? And I, and I suggested to you, and I'm recognizing this in my own, you know, in my own work here, and it's always a tension, uh, you know, what to do. So I, I sort of said that to you, and then about Wednesday, no, Tuesday, October 21st, look at this. So this is something, I get this every day. You could sign up. Actually, you know, there's some actually very interesting stuff, ChristianityToday.com, but look at this. This is Bill Hybels had a big conference last week, and, you know, they do some good stuff out there, you know, kind of. But he says, um, four lines down, Hybels says the largest gap exists not between seekers and believers, but between less mature Christians and Christ-centered Christians. The less mature, he says, believe that God is for me, my plans, and my agenda in this world. It's all about me. But truly Christ-centered have given up their lives and dreams in complete surrender to him. James, slave. Okay? So it's always interesting... um, you know, we don't agree with, you know, everybody else about everything, but it's always interesting when we're observing the same big trends that other people are, community and beauty, and then sort of, you know, and there are people who have platforms who, when they speak, then suddenly that's the theme of the day. N.T. Wright is like that. Hybels is like that. But it's interesting to see um, the, same, the same thing. Then um, John Ortberg, who did teach there and now is out in Palo Alto at Menlo Park Presbyterian Church, where I used to, when I was in college, uh, I took my elderly great aunt there once a month. Um, it's an interesting place. If you just look at the thing with uh, the gospel and happiness paradox, and you know, there's this thing that has been studied for a while. We're going to talk about joy today, and when you, when the way you, if you chase joy, you'll never get it. That's the paradox. People who study this, it's interesting. If you chase joy, you'll never find it. It's it's a, it's a crazy thing, and so anti what we think to be the American way. So go to the second page of this um, and just sort of read. Did you get this? The one that's the Christianity Today one? All right, raise your hand if you need that one. Mr. Muma. Oh, sorry. Now you offered to help me and I said what was already out. I'm sorry. So this is going to... I'm sorry. I thought you had this in your hands. I was um, a little bit behind you. So as you get this, on the front page is the quote by Hybels, so just in, the first, just in the first paragraph. And this is just something we need to watch out for. Here's the thing. The answer is not 
to sink to the lowest common denominator? The answer is not, that's not the answer. The scriptures never, ever, 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 ever say that. The scriptures are always about more and better and more and better and better and more and follow me and let's go and we're going all the way to the cross. And we see it as betrayal when people drop out. You cannot run, you cannot run the church, or better you can say the church does not run at the lowest common denominator. It runs at the highest common denominator. And what happens with people who are less mature, they need to be enveloped by the community. You can't let them run the community or the community will disintegrate in their unfaithfulness. You can't let the less faithful run the community or the community disintegrates at their level of unfaithfulness. You also can't scorn them the way you scorn your child when they come home from the hospital three days old and don't sleep through the night for two years and you're very tired and you don't know, right? You love them. That's what you do. So they can't run the show, but they get to be in the show. That's how you care for the less mature. That's what we need to do too. Okay, everybody pretty much got that. So then go to the second page that Ortberg has written, you know. And I'm going to read almost at the top of the page. And I think it's fascinating. I mean, this is just, it is amazing that everybody is on the same page. I mean, everybody who's sort of watching is on the same page. Stop talking, start doing. You know, 300 years of talking hasn't gotten us anywhere. Live the faith. Stop talking, start doing. I mean, it's from, it, it's, this is across denominations in the church Catholic. We, as, 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 who's the guy, I don't want to steal his line, but he says, we don't have an apologetic, we are an apologetic. Peter, Peter Lightheart. Lightheart. Lightheart, yeah, who's it's a primer in postmodernism or something like that, right? We don't have an apologetic, we don't have a witness, we are a witness, Okay. Discipleship or obedience, this is right at the top of the second page, is not something we have to cajole people into by obligation or gratitude. After all, Jesus died for you. The least you can do is deny yourself happiness. That's, that's just not it. That's, just, that's ridiculous. He doesn't come to make you crabby. He's happy, now you're crabby. No. You know, it's just, and then, then listen, and we talked about this specifically. One reason the old, if you were to die tonight, gospel was so popular is that at least it helps people be clear that they've made a decision about something. But in our day, we need a more accurate way to understand the gospel. We welcome this because we were never comfortable with the decision bit. Now listen, when Jesus walked the earth, the call, follow me, was easily understood. People would actually, physically, bodily walk with Jesus. If you're Lutheran, you're all over this. Incarnationally, Christologically, sacramentally, liturgically, Follow him. People knew if they were following. How do you know that you're following? You've been baptized. How do you know if you're following? You're in church every Sunday. How do you know if you're following? You learn the liturgy by heart. How do you know if you're following? Your kids are in confirmation. How do you know if you're following? You're at the Eucharist every week. How do you know if you're following? You're generous to other people. How do you know if you're following? You're saying your prayers every day. How do you know if you're following? You're following. You do it. Stop talking. It's not about talking. It's about doing. And everybody now has suddenly discovered what Lutherans have known for 500 years, which is great, but it would be an embarrassment if we were the ones who were talking while everybody else was doing. 
in our day, that experience has become so diluted and enculturated that people have a hard time knowing. And so our constant refrain that this life inside these walls should look very different than outside those walls. When you come here, this should be like heaven. Not only in how the music plays and how the Eucharist is given, but how you treat each other. This should be so obviously different that people should say, who are they following? What are they doing? Which is exactly what the Gospel of James is all about. I mean, this is just, we couldn't be happier about where the world is going straight to hell because we've got an answer for that. It's our sweet spot. It's not good when Christianity looks like everything else, when Christianity becomes, looks just like the government, looks just like Jesus the CEO, looks just like free enterprise, looks just like a superpower. That's not good. That's not the gospel. That's not Jesus. He died, folks. The cross, the body on the cross is what we're following. Okay? And when James starts his gospel, James, slave, then you're oriented to what you're going to do. Okay? So now you should have in front of you, you'll have a couple of things. One is just the text, and we're not going to do many verses. And um, in the first couple of weeks, the criticism was, this was no Bible study, we're not doing any verses. I know by the end of this week it'll be, this is a boring Bible study, we're going so slowly, we're just doing a couple of verses. So, you know, I can feel it coming, save your cards and letters. All right, so... um, you got James on one side. This is the initial page. If you don't have it, just listen. Um, just listen. This is the first page that you got the very first day. You can kind of hold these. Is anybody just dying to have one? Pastor Gaining's a loving sort of guy. Does anybody need one? I got them. Raise your hand if you need them. Really? The first? Anybody need James 1? Nobody? Oh, there you go. Okay. Can you miss right in the back on the right there? That'd be great. Okay, so just listen to this now. This is the opening greetings. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in dispersion, greetings. So you now remember this. James, slave, and all he has to say is greetings. He doesn't get to give the thing, the big thing Paul is. Uh, Pastor Nelson found this week uh, in, the, in a description of James in Hegepesis, which is an early church historian, about 160 A.D., He said, James had camel knees. Have you seen the knees on a camel? You know what they look like? The camels are ugly. That's a sign of the fall. So uh, James had camel knees. And you remember last week I told you that he was known in Jerusalem for dressing as a priest and spending so much time in the temple. It actually said he spent so much time praying on his knees in the temple that his knees became calloused. And they actually said he's got knees like a camel. Okay, so... He doesn't have to use, I mean, everybody knows who he is. He's James the just, James the righteous. He doesn't have to tell anybody who he is. He's James, okay? And this is what we're going to do today. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, 
For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Just out of curiosity, when, when you hear that phrase, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed about, anything come to mind there? What, what comes to mind? Anybody? Peter. Yeah! So Peter, who was an equal of James and then has been exiled and gone, and when he, even when he comes back, James is still the bishop of Jerusalem. And you know, this is what a great sort of community this must have been, that he can point at Peter and say, you remember how it went badly for Peter? Now you'll rightly say, there were some other times like that, like uh, the confession, get thee behind me Satan, or Gethsemane, or walking on the water. But isn't it great that they can even say of their leaders, you remember when he did that? That wasn't very good. You learn something, you know, you learn something there. I mean, if you, you can read this without thinking of Peter, but it would have been very difficult for people in the early church, you know, within 30 years of Jesus, of Peter walking on the water and sinking, would have been very difficult for them to hear this text and not think of Peter. And he says it in just sort of a matter-of-fact way. You know, you doubt, you sink. Very interesting. And we have proof, Peter. You know, our bishop. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And there was nothing more unstable than Peter going under the water. So just kind of hold on to that. So you've got then uh, a thing at the top that says number five. And if you, um, if you have last week's, you know, I, I sometimes I overlap depending on what I'm thinking about or where I stop or if I forget what I said last time, which occasionally can happen. Uh, but I'm sort of working from point eight on page 15. That was your last handout. And then I'm kind of going to work from point se- page 17. So you just got a couple of things going here because I thought about things in different ways. But right now I'm on, on, I'm on page 17. It's number five, num- uh, point one on page 17. And all of this, I'll just tell you, all this is going to depend on how you count and uh, how you feel about the science fair, how you feel about experiments, and how you define joy. So it's Miss Duff, Miss Mahoney, and uh, Val Gady. Those will be the three I'd be thinking about this morning, okay? So we'll just see how that works out today. All right. Start by having this common attitude that we're all a slave. And I want you, um, you know, Paul is bold enough to say, imitate me, do as I do. And James uh, is, I, I just, I don't know if you can, I mentioned this to the woman, women on Friday. Um, it's always interesting to have somebody from out of town, a, a visitor come, because when Father Patrick was here, he's a, he's a force, you know. Father Patrick Henry Rudin, he's a force. He fills the room, and he's a sharp intellect, you know. He's... Um, when, you know, when you're sitting around and he's comparing how he's memorized the Psalms in Hebrew and Latin and he's comparing the translations and how they come out, you're, you're in the right place. That's where you want to be, okay? But one of the things people like about him and are drawn to, I always ask myself, would they like him after a year under their care? Especially the Orthodox. The Orthodox, are, is, as he put it at lunch, the Orthodox is a man, it's, Orthodoxy is a manly religion. What he meant by that is it's very strong and authoritarian. Um, we don't quite have it in that. We're a little too American, and in Wheaton you get a double dose of that. But I just want you to observe 
how James, without any apology, just says, I'm your pastor, do this. Which is a very interesting, which is a very interesting procedure that probably has been lost, you know, in Lutheranism and maybe in, in, in America, but not in the scriptures. Peter speaks, they do it. James speaks, Acts 15, everybody's gathered up, James takes the floor, this is what you're going to do, boom, he's the bishop of Jerusalem, boom, that's what we do. And he does this. Remember now, these house churches, churches have scattered out of Jerusalem. And so he is, in fact, a bishop, which is there were these house churches and there were pastors of house churches and they went, the pastors cared for people and they've been catechized. And this is one of the great, um, you know, well, let me just say this could be a stronger thing in Lutheranism where the bishop is pastor to the pastors. That's a bishop's classic position, that a bishop acts as a pastor to pastors. Pastors need pastors too. You should be suspicious of anybody who doesn't have somebody up the link. You know, the genius of the Catholic Church, you know, love it or not, is that there's only one guy who um, doesn't have somebody to report up to on earth, and they try to choose a guy who, you remember how when the Pope gets elected, he goes into this thing called the Chapel of Sorrows, uh, and he decides whether or not he'll take the burden of being vicar of Christ. I'm not making a pitch for that. I'm only observing that it's always good to have somebody to care for you. The church was always designed that way. We rebel against that. We're free. We're going to do it ourselves. My private Jesus, my personal faith. Bah! That's not the church. The church is always everybody together. In fact, later when he says, ask in faith, you know, one of the things for you to think about is whether he means your private faith or act within the faith of the church confessed in the creed. Which one is that? So this is a very interesting way to think about the world. Um, you're never alone, okay? So start by having this as our common attitude, that we're slaves. James, slave. Okay, that's how we start. And then to the 12 tribes. And then I'm at verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Everything is going to depend on how you count and what you call joy. Um, if you define joy as a sensory pleasure, it's very difficult to square that up with people who were thrown to the lions or skinned alive. Or who was it that they said, when they put him to the pyre, he baked like bread? Do you remember that? It's, it's, very, it's very difficult. If you think joy is sensory pleasure or even emotional pleasure or emotional reaction, you got that from the movies. You didn't get that from the scriptures. Okay? So part of the natural reaction is do you know what joy is? And it's not. Uh, it's something other than uh, you feeling good about it. Okay? And that's one of the problems, and I've kind of warned you on this. This is one of the problems, which is people come to church and they think their life is going to get better, which means they're going to get richer and happier. Don't you hate it when people do this? I hate that. I can't believe I'm doing that. I'm never going to do that again. <laughs> Quotation marks should be banned for about 20 years, and then, you know, then they can come back in limited fashion. Um, people join the church because they think their lives, most people's lives get worse give away 10% of your income to start, start caring for the poor, get up every Sunday morning instead of reading the New York Times over a cup of coffee, your friends can't understand you, 
you bump into really stinky people in a place where you thought it was going to be all about community, most people's lives get worse, not better, when they were throwing people, you know, to the lions. I mean, James, he was killed, 62 AD, he's martyred. Was that joy? Well, for him it was. How did that happen? So we must mean something very different than what you all mean. Um, I've given you this a point, too, which is this is used in the scriptures for everything, for how it feels at a wedding. So, you know, great wedding, it's, uh, you feel good about that. Uh, but it's also used uh, for when you get flogged. Acts 5.41. They had great joy in their flogging. Forty lashes, less one. Just explain that to me. Whatever, whatever definition of joy you came with this morning... My guess is that that does not fit into it, okay? Which means you, what that means is you and I have definitions that we ourselves have devised, and so we have expectations that go with those definitions, and James is talking about something completely different. So this isn't normally how we talk. But there are some clues to getting joy right, and I'm at the third point down. Um, greetings... <laughs> Uh, you know, and some of you aren't going to like this, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Uh, this is the word that was used in the Old Testament when Israel was addressed as daughter of Zion. So it's for the church. And then it's also, or is it? And then this is also the word that's used when the angel comes to Mary and you have to ask whether Mary is, instead, is really daughter of Zion. And then you have to ask yourself why James uses this particular word to talk to the church, which is mother of all of you. So there's something tied up in all that. Israel and uh, incarnation. It is also the word that the, sa- that the soldiers used when Jesus was on the cross. Hail, King of the Jews. And then it is the word that Jesus spoke back in the garden when he met the women. Hail. Greetings. So whatever this word means, you have to bring all of that forward. You have to bring that it was a greeting for Israel. It was a greeting for Mary. It was a greeting for Jesus on the cross. And it was a greeting from Jesus to his first disciples. What does that mean? What else can that mean? but that everything you hear and what follows is bundled up in the promise of a Messiah, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. And they would have heard it that way. They would have heard that as an incarnational Christological greeting. The Lord promised a Messiah. He delivered a Messiah through Mary. That Messiah went to the cross. That Messiah rose from the dead. And now you should begin to understand why whatever happens to you, whatever happens to you, can be received with joy. It's all packed in this very first thing. James, slave, greetings. You have to hear the way they would have heard. You have to hear it in their context first before you hear it in your context. And it's extraordinarily important to hear that. And my brothers was not a term that was used lightly. You know, Pastor Ganey showed you of how it was used for kinfolk, for cousins, or for people who'd moved in, stepsons. This is the communal kind of talk. 
So this is like, we're all on the same page. Yeah, not everybody's at the same maturity level, but you're in the gang. And so now, James, as his pastor, norms you. You don't have freedom outside the boundaries that James described. You can't be your own person. To be a Christian is not to be your own person. It's to be the Lord's person. And then he says, consider it. I'm sorry, not consider it. Consider it. Or categorize it. Or think about it in this way. So what he's saying to people is, everybody else in the world takes in the world in, a diff- in one way. You're in the church. You have to count it, tag it, think about it, characterize it, analyze it, group it in a different way. You're not the same as everybody else in the world. So when things come to you like difficulties, your kid gets sick, your mother dies, your kids have a divorce, you lose your job, You get cranky about something that happens at church. You actually have to think about it, count it, analyze it in a different way. I led with this a couple of weeks ago, and I just, it's so important. One of the biggest problems in church people is they come to church, and then when the chips are down, they act like they act out in the world. That is utterly illicit. The church has its own rubric. The church has its own way like loving your enemies and doing good to those who hate you and rejoicing when you're persecuted. This is no different than the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. This is Jesus talking. James is just reminding his pastor what Jesus says. It's one of the greatest difficulties in the church that people bring all their stuff from outside and they try to crush the church down with it as opposed to, and this is the mark of a church that works, people bring all their stuff from outside and they put it in service to the gospel. Next Saturday, for example, we'll need a lot of men and women who can swing a sledgehammer like a Christian, (laughs) as opposed to just normal sledgehammering. There's some special Christian sledgehammering which we'll need to see next week. A lot of it will involve not swearing when you hit your thumb, uh, apparently. We'll work this out in the doing, not in the talking, okay? Or as, you know, in the famous, and I'm just at the bottom of the first page now, at the bottom of 17, in the famous chapel sermon of Pastor Nelson, <clears throat> who wore swimming goggles throughout his uh, little sermon, faith goggles to all of you. So you put your faith goggles on and the world looks like a different place, but it's completely true. You look at the world through faith goggles, it looks differently, okay? So I give you this next possibility. that joy proceeds from what matters. You tell me what matters to you, and I'll tell you what makes you happy. It's just that simple. You tell me what matters, and I'll tell you what makes you happy. So if you say that all that, all that matters is my job, I'll tell you what makes you happy. Now, this will be, you know, more difficult to believe, but if you say, all that matters is my family, I'll tell you what matters, what makes you happy. You say, all that matters is my family, I'll tell you what makes you happy. For example, when someone loses a child, which is the most horrible thing there is, but they say, 
I can never believe in God again because I lost my child. That means that somehow down deep they love their child more than they love Jesus. And that's a stark way of putting it, but that's the ultimate diagnosis that takes years to get there. I get it, I've been through it, but I'm just telling you, that's what it is. Okay? You tell me what matters, and I'll tell you what makes you happy. If all you live for is the Eucharist, and you know that in the Eucharist Christ touches you, skipping church isn't even on your radar. Because going to the Eucharist is the only thing that can make you happy. That's all there is. If Jesus is all there is, if that's what matters to you, then every time Jesus is present, you'll be roundabout. It's just that simple. You tell me what matters, I'll tell you what makes you happy. James knows what matters. They killed him, and he didn't flinch. Okay. The word here for temptation is the word for experiment. It is, in fact, the word that the devil uses when he comes to Jesus. Let's play with him. You can hear this conversation going on. Let's play with him. Let's see what we can get out of him. You remember how his temptation works? He's baptized. He's called the Son of God. He immediately goes into the wilderness, and the devil plays with him, trying to talk him out of what matters, tries to talk him out of his name, this is my beloved son with whom I will please. The devil tries to talk him out of that name. It's an experiment. And experiments separate one thing from another. What is that? I don't know. We should run an experiment. Some knucklehead sends white powder to, you know, 30 bank branches this week. Well, what's the first thing they do? What is that? Is it anthrax or is it baby powder? What is that? We've got to figure that out. That's the word here. It can be used for the temptation of Jesus. It's used in the parable of the sower where it says the, sometimes the, 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 the seed was thrown out, but the experiment didn't work very well. Um, the seed sprung up and then it withered away. Isn't that interesting? It was an experiment. Whether or not seed would grow on hard ground, it doesn't. Which is why new members, part of the catechumen it is, you've got to keep new members in the place. They're hard ground. And they get all enthusiastic for about 15 weeks and then something happens or somebody looks at them cross-eyed or they can't park or you sit in their place and you, somebody says something or their kid gets punched in the nose at school and then what happens? They're gone. Well, it's an experiment. It didn't work out very well, but we find out who they were. We found out who Jesus was. We find out who the new believers are. And it's also, uh, you know, an experiment about when we're tempted by our flesh is the, is the context in 1 Timothy 1. So each temptation tells you it's an experiment, if you can hear it this way. This is a brutal way to talk about people having major surgery, people having cancer, people having somebody losing a job, people losing somebody close to them, people having marriage. It's a brutal way to talk about it. It's almost clinical. But it, at the deepest level, it's true. And you've got to get to this level and think about your life in this way. It just, he just says to you, can you think about your life in this way? Can you consider your life this way? Can you consider, you know, the next victim comes at about 11.23 today. You know, some c 
crazy parents are going to bring their kid for baptism, we should write them an apology note. You know? Because they've got to think about their life in a whole different way from now on. Can you do that? This is the question for you. For James, you'll notice he doesn't put it as a question. He just says, this is the way life is. Okay, from now on, count it joy when you suffer all kinds of temptation. Why? Because temptation sifts you. It's the word for telling them whether or not you've got uh, real stuff or not. You remember all those knuckle-headed Olympians biting on their medals? I'm like, don't worry, it's gold. It's the Olympics. Okay? Really, it's been tested. You don't have to worry about it. But this is the word, this is the experiment for figuring out whether or not something is true. And the result of that, the word for steadfastness, is the word for staying put. Okay? So I've regularly said to you, the only reason to leave a church is false doctrine. The greatest shame among pastors is that they'll take other people's problems without working it out with the other pastor. The greatest shame for parishioners is to leave without, full, without, without cause, because you break the community. You've taken things from the community, you've given nothing back, and you've broken it. The greatest shame for pastors is to take in those people at the church just down the road uh, without examination. Because what happens then is Matthew 18 never happens and community gets broken and people, people don't have to own up to what they've done and pastors don't trust each other. James knew what he was talking about. This is how the church runs. You have trial. You're tested. And you stay put and examine the results. That's what congregations are supposed to do. And that's what pastors are supposed to do. And if you do that, then you are living in what he calls faith. Where faith is not where you just try to whip up a lot of belief so you can try to get something out of Jesus. Faith means agreeing with Jesus, doing what he says, saying what he says, living in his community. Faith isn't about you whipping something up inside of you hoping to make a deal. That couldn't be more anti-Christ and anti-Reformation. We're Lutherans for crying out loud. To ask in faith is to ask within the context of the church, within the context of the creed, within the context of your baptism, within the context of the Eucharist, within the context of the holy names. You can have anything, says Jesus, that you ask in my name. That's faith. If you start to ask for things outside the name, that's unfaith. Okay? So to ask in faith is to ask for the things that God chooses to give. His body, his blood, his forgiveness, his community, his love, his joy, his gifts of the Spirit, his work of generosity and witness in the world so that everybody can come home to Eden. That's what he's talking about, okay? So you thought James was all about you. It's not about you at all. This is about how to be a church. It's about how to be a pastor. And if you do that, then you come to what's called the full effect. Telios and ergon, a completed work. You come to the end point. You come to what you were meant for. You come to what the church is good for. Okay? You come to the point that Jesus is aiming at when he says, follow me. This is how it works. 
So you read the text in this way, okay? Count it all joy, my brothers, which means think about your world in a different way. Okay? Think about it in a different way. When you meet these little experiments, when you meet the normal wear and tear of life, and when you meet the abnormal things that are visited upon you because of sin, death, and the devil. When you come to those things, think about it in a different way. They're going to come in all different ways. It says, when you meet trials of various kinds, they're going to come in all different ways. Sit still. Stay put. Stick in the community. Stay in the church. Stay in the faith. Do what you've been given to do. Because the testing, this is the point where we find out what's worth holding on to and what's not worth holding on to. Okay. This experiment's going to tell you what to hold on to and what not to hold on to. And when people grab on the wrong thing, they've let the world impose on the church. You grab on the right thing and the church imposes on the world. Letting steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, that you get to the end of the line, that you become what you were made to be. Perfect and complete, lacking nothing, full up. That is, that you'll live in the church and someday you'll live in the church above. The constant Eucharist of Jesus giving himself to his people for life eternal. That's what this text is talking about. Just turn over to 19 and I'll wrap up with this, point four. So the sifting and the sorting reveals who you are. You know, crisis reveals character. It tells you what your starting point is. It tells you what you've got. It tells you what you've been given. It tells you what matters. Okay, crisis tells you who you are. It tells you what you're made of tells you what direction you're going, tells you who you agree with, tells you who you listen to, and it can tell you how it'll end for you. You know, you quit this, you'll quit the next thing, you'll quit the next thing, and you'll quit the next thing after that. It gets easier. It doesn't take you anywhere, but it gets easier. The sifting and sorting also develops you. Okay? I made it through that one. The Lord stood by me. Here comes another one. The Lord will stand by me again. It shapes you. And in some ways, endurance pushes you toward perfection. This is the difference between strong persons and weak persons. This is the difference between strong congregations and weak congregations. Whether or not they can always cling to what matters, no matter what comes. And clinging to what matters means saying what you're told to say and doing what you're told to do. And here's the payoff. The sifting and the sorting makes a masterpiece out of you. You know, normally we would avoid suffering, and it's good to avoid suffering because there's enough of it, it'll come to you. But when suffering comes, normally we default to the way the rest of the world, we whine about it, and we, you know, we do power plays, and we do deals, and we crush people down, and we sweep them out of the way, and we get our own. That is not the church. Instead, the Lord, through suffering, makes a masterpiece out of you. He makes you what you were meant to be. Right? This is great. And this isn't moral perfection. You know, you're never morally perfect in this life, but it is a practical perfection. 
like loving your enemies or sharing the Father's forgiveness or praying for those who kill you like Stephen did or Jesus on the cross saying, man, these people are so confused. Forgive them because there's nothing else. You can't explain it to them. They're too stupid and irrational. Just forgive them. That's the paradigm for life. It's a masterpiece. This is just thinking about the world in a whole different way. But if you're baptized, this is what you just you have to count things differently. Think differently, live differently, different, different, different. Okay? Good luck. Lord, remember us in the kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.